0: Good morning, my relatives. This is Mark Charles, and it is Friday, October 28th, and I'm sitting down with my second cup of coffee here. And I want to talk about some of the events of the day, including the war in Ukraine, um, as well as the upcoming midterm elections. But uh, before I begin, let me do as I always do, which is acknowledge that uh, I'm humbled to be speaking to you from what's now called Washington, D.C. But these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. And I want to honor the Piscataway as the hosts of the land where I'm living. I want to thank them for their stewardship of it. And just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. So if you have a second, grab a cup of coffee. This is some of my favorite beans. I got some Rwanda beans from uh, a coffee house here in D.C. And uh, I'm actually really (laughs) enjoying this this bag of beans. So... um, yeah, but I, I wanted to talk about some of the stuff in Ukraine. But before I get into that, um, let me, uh, let's first of all, see who's on here. Uh, good morning, Dreamy Nirvana. Great to see you. Glad you could join today. Um, there's probably a few other people on here as well. Uh, so overnight, I want to just mention this before we get into the war on Ukraine. Um, overnight. You'll probably probably heard that the ownership of Twitter, uh, the the sale of Twitter to Elon Musk um, got completed. And he is now the official owner of Twitter. It's no longer a publicly traded company. And if you look at the rhetoric online, especially on Twitter, there are a lot of people, especially by my observation, a lot of white men who are very, very, very concerned about this. And so just to put things in perspective, I tweeted this out this morning. I said, overnight, Twitter's ownership transferred from white landowning men, i.e. Wall Street, to white landowning man, i.e. Elon Musk. So far, I don't notice much difference. (laughs) Still colonial. Um, I put up with it, but it's still it's it is what it is. And uh, yeah, it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of difference, at least immediately, whether it's owned by a white landowning man or a white landing group of men. Um, but uh, anyway, there's a lot of uh, rhetoric going on back and forth about the sale and the completion of it today. So that's just my perspective on it uh, if you if you have a chance to look at that. Um, so I want to talk about the war in Ukraine. And uh, I want to talk especially about all of the rhetoric that's been going on, almost for the past month, it was towards the end of December, if you remember, that Vladimir Putin gave a speech. And in his speech, he threatened to use every measure at his command um, if Russia felt threatened in this war on Ukraine. He was especially talking to the West. Um, there was a story on Reuters that um, highlighted this quote. I'm going to put this in here right now. And I'll put that into the comment section. Um, and in the in this speech, again, this was towards the end of September, the last week of September, probably. Uh, Vladimir Putin said, if the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will without doubt use all available means to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff. Um, this was in a speech given, a national speech given to the Russian people. And... Right. There was a lot of concern because when a nuclear power threatens to use every measure at their command, they're threatening nuclear war, right? They're threatening uh, that they will use their nuclear arsenal to defend themselves. And there was a lot of rhetoric coming out of the Democratic Party. There's a lot of rhetoric coming out of the West, especially Europe and the United States of how irresponsible, how could this man talk like this? Um, And there was just a lot of panic. About a week later, um, this was in uh, October 6th, at a Democratic fundraiser, uh, President Biden was referencing kind of the escalating rhetoric coming out of uh, the Kremlin. And... Uh, Joe Biden said, we have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And of course, he's referring to nuclear Armageddon and the threat of nuclear war between the West and Russia. Uh, However, we have to note, he didn't use the word nuclear war or nuclear, right? He didn't talk about that. He used the word Armageddon. And this was, this is interesting that he used the word Armageddon. Because if you if you look up the word Armageddon, uh, I just did a simple Google search, right? So if you look up Armageddon, it, this is what Google told me. In the New Testament, the last battle between good and evil before the Day of Judgment. It's a biblical hit of uh, Megidio an archaeological site in the plain of Estreleon, south of southern-day Hafia in Israel, the place where the last battle between good and evil will be fought. And if you search Armageddon online, one of the references you will see frequently is that Armageddon refers to the divine obliteration of God's enemies, that that sentiment will appear in multiple different ways. Um, I I, I saw something similar to that on Wikipedia. I saw it in a bunch of other kind of uh, prophecy-type websites and references to Armageddon. But uh, the the thread running through a lot of people's understanding of Armageddon is it does. It refers to this final battle, which is a divine obliteration of all of God's enemies. Um, And so, again, it's interesting that Joe Biden, President Biden, uses the word Armageddon to refer to the rhetoric by Vladimir Putin that he will use uh, every measure at his command, i.e. his nuclear arsenal, to defend his country. So, again, Russia using nuclear weapons in Ukraine does not by definition mean global nuclear destruction, right? It means Russia will defend itself with nuclear weapons. um, And, uh, you know, right. It's not necessarily meaning global nuclear destruction. To really have global nuclear destruction, you have to have destruction. You really need to have both sides, two sides engaging in all out nuclear warfare. Right. If this is going to be the final battle between good and evil, you need to you need to have a war, not just one side using their nuclear arsenal like the United States did in Japan, <laughs> which, of course, we're the only nation to reuse nuclear weapons in um, in a in a military conflict and on civilians. Nonetheless, um, we've never fully dealt with that, but that's part of our history of what we've done. And so you have to ask, well, why would Putin using nuclear weapons in Ukraine lead to a final battle, potentially ending the world um, in in this nuclear Armageddon battle? Well, to get into Joe Biden's thinking, we have to go back to. August of 2021, when there was a terrorist attack in Afghanistan. And I've referenced this quote by Joe Biden in numerous speeches. I've probably brought it up here on my Sink of Coffee a few times. But again, if we're going to look at Armageddon, we have to understand um, his response. And so I'm going to share, first of all, the remarks he gave that are in the briefing room on the White House website. And I'm gonna show a graphic of this, but I'm gonna give you the link to this here in the comment section, so you can actually look at the entire uh, speech he gave. Um, This was on August 21st, or August 26th, sorry, of uh, 2021. And in his speech, Joe Biden, said, to those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this, we will not forgive, we will not forget, we will hunt you down and make you pay. I will defend our interests and our people with every measure at my command. So, right, this is where we start to get into the danger zone, because now we have two heads of state of nuclear powers threatening to use nuclear weapons if they feel threatened themselves. So this is not just the, the dangerous rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin. This is the, the dangerous rhetoric coming out of the White House. And you might actually know it's probably even more dangerous coming out of the White House because, again, we're the only country who's ever used nuclear weapons on civilians ever in the history of the world. And so, of course, our, our uh, disregard for the value of human life is even more blatant, even than Vladimir Putin and Russia's, because we've used this weapon and we've used it to kill hundreds of thousands. Um, we killed well over 100,000 between uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But in all of the bombing raids in Japan throughout the end of World War II, we actually killed over 300,000 civilians. Um, as we fought to, to end the war, um, we, we, took, we, we created a war against civilians and made the human um, death count so high, it was unbearable. Um, again, that was our plan. So, yeah, we have to note that we have both the West and Russia threatening nuclear weapons. And of course, no one said how dangerous the rhetoric was from Joe Biden when he said it in 2021, because this is technically the rhetoric that most U.S. presidents use when our nation feels threatened, especially after terrorist attacks, right? I mean, this is President Trump talked about his big red button, um, and he threatened uh, destruction to our enemies and even to our allies if, if they got in his way. Um, and so, yeah, this is just how the American people expect our leaders to speak when we feel threatened, especially from terrorism. So we have to note, first of all, we have similar rhetoric coming out of both the left and the right regarding nuclear warfare. And we are using Pretty much the exact same language President Biden is using almost the, or I should rephrase it, Vladimir Putin's using the exact same language that President Biden used just a, a year and a half earlier. Um, so now we have two white landowning men who are the head of the two, two of the most powerful countries in the world threatening to annihilate each other if they feel threatened. Um, So now we're actually talking, okay, we're talking about global nuclear destruction. But again, why does Joe Biden use the word Armageddon? Why does he frame this as a battle between good and evil with A, the destruction of the world resulting and God's side winning? Well, in that same speech, and again, many of you have heard me talk about this, but we have to acknowledge what we say as a country. In that same speech, Joe Biden went on to say, those who have served through the ages have drawn inspiration from the book of Isaiah, when the Lord says, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And the American military has been answering for a long time. Here am I, Lord, send me. Here I am, send me. In his State of the Union in 2022, Joe Biden used the word sacred twice. He used it once in reference to um, the Capitol as a sacred space where he was giving his speech. And he used it once in regards to the sacred obligation we have to take better care of our veterans. Now, why would he say the word sacred? Why would he bring the aspect into the divine, the aspect of the divine, into the dialogue about what we need to do for our veterans? Well, the answer is easy. Joe Biden believes that he is the commander-in-chief of the army of the Lord that is responding to a prophetic call on par with that of Isaiah the prophet. So this is why he talks in terms of Armageddon, right? Because in his worldview, Russia is evil and The United States of America is good, and God's on our side, and therefore, we actually have permission, because we were fighting this battle of good versus evil, and in the Battle of Armageddon, the world is destroyed, and evil is defeated, which means the United States of of America has... in the warped, twisted, blasphemous mind of Joe Biden and most Americans, and don't think the Republicans don't think this way either. They both think this way. But this this is how we think as a nation. This is what we want our leaders to talk like. This is what we believe about ourselves. And so this is why Joe Biden blasphemously used the word Armageddon Because the American people, again, this is a bipartisan value. The left and the right speak this way. The American people believe that we are God's chosen people and believe that our military is the army of the Lord serving a prophetic call on par with that of Isaiah the prophet. Almost nobody called out Joe Biden when he spoke this way. This is what we believe. And so this is where the rhetoric gets incredibly dangerous. So when we have the president of the free world, again, I use that term very, very, very loosely, have the president of the United States talking about Armageddon, a man who's previously threatened to use every measure at his command, promising he would not forgive and he would not forget anyone who threatened the United States and committed acts of terror against us. When he is warning of Armageddon, He's not first and foremost warning about what our opponents might do. He's warning what our response will be. That's what he's warning about. If you threaten us, I think essentially he's saying he's going to destroy the world. His response will be so great as he commands the supposed army of the Lord. So, yeah, this is where, right, the, the rhetoric, I, both Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden, both Russia and the United States are threats to humanity. They both are. Both have a very deep, deep, deep deep-seated sense of narcissism and exceptionalism. And both would feel absolutely justified, probably without an ounce of remorse, to bring about this sort of destruction on the globe because they would both believe they were doing it in the name of the Lord. So as I listen to all of this rhetoric going on about the war in Ukraine and what we're doing and not doing and what the Republicans are saying, what the Democrats are saying, and all it it, it this is where it's both absurd and it's terrifying if you think about it. And we need to have a completely different dialogue about this. We need to. We absolutely need to. And at some point, as a nation, as a globe, we have to decide we're not going to put up with this sort of rhetoric anymore. Coming from either side. Because I can promise you, right the united states of america is not is not the agent of good in this world that is not ever what we've been and it's not what we are today we might have lofty aspirations but we are nowhere near who we think we are and this is evident even as we look at our 2022 midterm elections, right? Again, again, the, the, the myth of American exceptionalism runs so deep within our country. I want to highlight this. Just, just a few weeks ago, or a few days ago, in an op-ed published on CNN, Joe Biden wrote an op-ed regarding uh, the midterm elections. Going to share it right there. And in this op-ed, one of the things that he said is he he talked about all the things the Democrats are doing, all the good things the Democrats are doing, all the horrible things the Republicans are doing. And he's not incorrect in some respects, but he's not telling the whole story either, right? And one of the comments he made, which really caught my eye, was he said in reference to the Republican Party, this is not your father's Republican Party, right? So I'm a little over 50 years old. So my father's Republican Party is the Republican Party of the 1960s and 70s and 80s, right? And let's just not say, what if we said this is not your father's America, right? Because in the 60s and 70s, we literally couldn't decide as a nation if we wanted to grant civil rights to people of color. Segregation was alive and well. Opposition to civil rights was a bipartisan value, right? We had three, at least three Democratic senators helping filibuster against the civil rights bill of 1964, Dr. King was assassinated, right? The racial violence was rampant in our country. White men especially love to look back in our political history with a sense of lament. Remember back when we were so much more bipartisan. Remember back when when we had civility in the halls of Congress. Remember back when, when we could come together on massive problems and figure them out. It's because the two parties back then were... Fairly unified in their explicit racism, sexism, and white supremacy. That wasn't the big debate. They were even, I mean, like I said, there, the, the civil rights bill was not a completely partisan divide. You had Republicans who voted for it and you had Democrats who were opposed to it. Working actively to keep it down. So, when politicians look back and say, oh, our politics used to be so much more civil, it's because for much of that period, white people couldn't vote. I Aren't mean, white people? People of color couldn't vote. I mean, you've heard me say this before. The only people who can look back on American history with any sense of nostalgia, remember how things used to be better, is white people. It's the only ones. No one else can look back and say, oh, yes, things for women or things for people of color, things for African-Americans or things for Native Americans were so much better 40 or 50 years ago. No one else can do it. The only people who can look back on our nation's history with any sense of nostalgia is white landowning men. And in this election, right? So right now, again, the Democrats are framing that, yes, they are the agents of good fighting and they are fighting for a few things that are progressive and would bring some necessary change. But let me remind you of a, how, what we're fighting, right? Let's let's take away out of the political rhetoric and let's look at some of the things we're actually deciding on. This is a story of AP in AP. Where in five states, in five states in the country, slavery is on the ballot. It's true. There are many states that have clauses in their state constitutions very similar to the one that's in the U.S. Constitution, clauses that keep enslavement legal In prison, this is what the Thirteenth Amendment says: Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Right? Just the other day, I came across this tweet. I'm going to share it with you in the chat section, in the comment section. Came across this tweet. By some um, uh, African American man who was formerly incarcerated. He said, I was making 12 cents an hour teaching people in prison how to use Microsoft on computers, while my white supervisor made nearly six figures to supervise me to do it. That is what they mean by modern day slavery. And he's not wrong, right? Enslavement is still absolutely legal within our criminal justice system. That was the goal of Abraham Lincoln. He had no intention of making voters or jurors of African Americans or allowing them to hold office or to intermarry. The man was a blatant, unapologetic, self proclaimed white supremacist. And so slavery is alive and well within our country. And it's 2022, and we still have constitutionally protection for enslavement in our constitutions, our state constitutions, and our national constitution. And we're the good guys? We're the good guys? In 2020, we couldn't even decide we wanted to make the the Equal Rights Amendment a a part of our Constitution, when Virginia ratified it, becoming the 38th state to ratify it. But because that amendment had expired, so now we as a nation don't even agree that women should have an equal voice, constitutionally protected. And what are the good guys? Right? In 9-11, in 9-11, people of color, religious zealots, attacked our country. And many of them have been tortured and are sitting in Guantanamo Bay. On January sixth, white people, many of them religious zealots, attacked our capital, and they're being sentenced to a few months, maybe a few years in prison, if even that. And we still haven't even decided if our president, who is leading the whole thing, is worthy of being charged in this. And our country is the good guys. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, if President Obama had done even a quarter of what Donald Trump did, he would be in prison today. I promise you that. Who we think we are as a nation and who we actually are is so it's a chasm apart. Not even close. And the fact that our president goes on national media, and threatens. I'm going to say threatens because, again, good versus evil. In the mind of this man, he is the commander-in-chief of the army of the Lord who is fighting evil. And in that battle, the world gets destroyed. And so when Joe Biden says Armageddon, he is threatening the destruction of the world. And this from the country that dropped nuclear bombs on civilians in Japan. So we know we'll do it. This is, this is where the rhetoric of our country and especially the rhetoric of the white landowning men we elect as our leaders is so over-the-top dangerous. And yes, the Democrats and the Republicans are both to blame. Trump's easy, right? His rhetoric, he's hes blatant. He enjoys it. And white evangelicals have sold their souls out to his power. And they know they've done it. They've know, they have know they've sold their souls. If you don't believe me, ask them what they thought of Trump 12 years ago. I can promise you almost none of them would have had a high opinion of him. Except maybe they liked his show on Fox. Or his show on ABC, The Apprentice, or whatever it was called. But they certainly didn't look to him as a leader. Or as a man of great moral character. No, they sold themselves out because they lust after his power. And they know it. They know it. But the Republic, the Democrats are just as bad because Joe Biden speaks using the exact same language. And this is where we have to have such a deeper dialogue than we're having about any of this stuff right now. We have to go much deeper. We have to look at our foundations. We have to address things at a foundational level. We have to look at what we were built on as a nation and actually how little progress we've made in addressing those things at a foundational level. We have to be embarrassed by the fact that it's 2022 and we're just now getting around to putting women into certain offices or putting people of color into certain positions. We have to be embarrassed by the fact that we still have enslavement legal in our constitutions or in the States and in our national constitution. We have to hold our head in shame for who we are as a country. And the crazy thing is, is we think that's our only option, right? I can't tell you when I ran for president in 2020, how many people of color, how many progressive Christians told me, I can't vote for you. I can't support you. I love what you're talking about. I love your vision. But it's too dangerous to support you. Voting for you, they said to me, is like voting for Donald Trump and I have to put Joe Biden in office as compared to Donald Trump. I can't afford to Voting for you, Mark, is putting someone who's going to use his big red button. Instead, I have to not vote for you so I can vote for the man who believes the U.S. Army is the army of the Lord and is willing to commit Armageddon. We fall into that. We fall into that. We've been so deceived by the two-party system, which works in partnership to maintain the status quo. And the status quo is racism, sexism, and white supremacy. This is why literally just just a couple of days ago I tweeted this out. I said, I've read the Declaration of Independence. I've read the Constitution. I've written a book about the doctrine of discovery over the past two decades. I've lived on an Indian reservation, the Navajo Reservation, and I've lived in Washington, D.C. So trust me when I tell you that in the United States of America, we the people was never meant to include all the people. That was never the goal. And this is why we have to stop playing around where the two parties want us to play around at, and we have to address these things at the foundational level. We have to keep take the conversation so much deeper, my relatives. And we have to get courageous. We have to stand against the violence and the dehumanization and the racism and the sexism and the white supremacy of both the left and the right. We have to treat everybody, including those we disagree with, with dignity. We need not to resort to violence. And we need to chart a different path. Will we have the courage? I've been fairly silent about the midterm elections because I really don't know what to do. And to be honest, I don't know how to vote. The Democrats, neither Democrats nor the Republicans have any interest in changing these things at a foundational level. And I don't know how to vote. Plus I live in DC, so right, I don't even have a member of Congress or a member of the Senate I can vote for. We have local officials that we can vote for, but yeah, I, I'm not even a part of this democracy right now. I can't even vote for who represents us in Congress because we have no representation in Congress. And before that, I lived on the reservation where, again, 26,000 square miles if we were a state, the ninth largest state by land mass. And even the Navajo Reservation does not comprise a single congressional district. It's only a piece of a congressional district in three different states. Yeah, again, trust me, we the people was never meant to include all the people. I'm not meaning to be hopeless, but I am deeply troubled and I'm not sure what to do. One of the reasons I ran in 2020 was because I didn't know what else to do. No one else was going to advocate for these things. No one else was going to bring these things to the table. And that's one of the primary reasons I ran in 2020. So I'm going to continue talking about this as we get closer to the midterm elections. Obviously, we need to participate in our system somehow, in some constructive way. And I'll be honest, I am still looking for a way to do that. But I appreciate you taking some time this morning to join me for a cup of coffee. I hope your cup of coffee is as good as mine is. And, uh, yeah, we'll figure this out. We'll continue talking about these things. We'll continue to challenge those in power from both the left and the right. Try to point out the deceptions, the blasphemy, the heresy that comes out of both parties in our country. And we'll call Americans to be even more courageous. If we want to change our country, doesn't First and foremost, take anger. It takes courage. So be courageous, my relatives. Let me look at my comments and see who else is on here. See, there's a lot of stuff going on. I kind of got into my words there, so I might have, I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. Phil Fox, Yacht A. Andrea, Yacht A. Thanks for joining. Terry, Yate, A. Hello. Thank you for joining. Um, Norma Yate, good to see you. Thank you for joining. Uh, it's good to see all these voices on here. Um, who else? Munchy Bear. Hey, Yate, I've been a, good morning from Gallup, New Mexico. Glad you could be here. I'm actually going to be back in Gallup um, the end, uh, the beginning of December. I'm going back for about 10 days, December 10th through December 15th. And I'm hoping to do a book event at the Navajo Nation Museum. I'm still trying to get the logistics for that planned out, but that's on my goal of things to get done. So I'm hoping to be back there. Um, uh, Tommy Yate, thanks for joining. Uh, Yes, please hit like so more people can see this. Um, Please add a comment into the comment section after the live stream is over, which helps it move up further in the algorithm. Um, Thank you for that tip there. Tommy. um, I'm glad to see everybody on here. Tanya, thank you. I love this shirt. I got this shirt at the flea market in Gallup, New Mexico uh, when I was there over the summer. And uh, I love it. I really like this shirt. It's become one of my favorites. So, But I hope everyone has a really good day. I hope that that you are able to uh, help I begin to make sense as we sort through all this stuff about the midterm elections and about the war in Ukraine. Obviously, what's happening to the Ukraine people is horrific, and obviously, what Russia is doing is absolutely unjust and needs to be addressed. The problem is, is the United States of America has almost no integrity to address what Russia is doing. We have almost no integrity, and we are so hopelessly unaware of who we are as a nation, that the things we say even to try and be helpful are actually end up massive threats and dangerous rhetoric. So, yeah, we have to, but we have to find a way to figure this out. We have to find a way to, to change that conversation. If people are interested and I'm going to, I'm continuing to, um, on my I started about a, nine months ago a Patreon site, and on my Patreon, I go even more in depth into some of the stuff. I have almost nine months worth of content archived there. We have a virtual book study I'm doing with myself and my co-author Sing Chan Ra. Uh, this month, we actually earlier in the month we did chapter eight, and this weekend I'm going to be doing chapter nine. My co-author, Sing Chan Ra is out of the out, is traveling right now and on sabbatical, so we're not able to do it together. But we're going to do, do Chapter 9, I think, tomorrow morning is when I have it scheduled for. And uh, so if you if you join my Patreon today, not only do you get access to the content I'm putting out this month, but you get access to a year's worth of content or nine months worth of content that I've already already been putting out. Um, also, I'm doing a lecture on one of my, um, my tiers. I have a lecture that I, I do a lecture every month. And my lecture this month is on giving thanks for Genocide and it's on the the honest, the truthful story of the dehumanization and even the genocide that went into the creation of Thanksgiving um, and our celebration of it here in in this country. So um, yeah, you can always join my Patreon. I'm continuing to plan book tour events and people who are interested in um, helping support that, I have a GoFundMe. And I also am continuing to promote, uh, my book on selling truths, uh, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. And if you would like to purchase a signed copy of "Unselling truths, you can do that from my website. So I'm doing some work this week and next on my website, trying to make it a bit cleaner. Um, it's gotten kind of messy over the past few years without much attention given to it. So I'm working on that this week, but, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to all the engagement I'll do on my Patreon over the weekend, and I'm looking forward, I'm I'm home for about another two weeks before I have my next overnight trip when I'm going to uh, Los Angeles and Ohio um, between, when am I leaving, now? November 14th through November 18th, I think are the, the five or six days I'll be gone. But uh, I'm around for the next two weeks, I'm looking forward to continuing to engage here on my second cup of coffee and on social media but uh, yeah it's really good to be here thank you everybody for joining me today Uh, i hope that you have a good day and may we all walk in beauty and may we learn how to walk in beauty together so i can't have my relatives